In the reading corner today, we're going to be talking about a new book, The Firefox, which is written by Lee Newbury. It's a debut book and it's a fantasy adventure with touches of humour in it. And in the reading corner, Lee joins me to help us find out what sparked this book. Uh, Welcome, Lee. Hi, thank you very much. It's great to be here. So the Firefox, I have to say, it's a real page turner and I whizzed through it in no time. So I want to start at the beginning with your three characters, your three main characters, and this first chapter, which hooked me right from the beginning. And it really sets up this friendship between Charlie, Rue and Lippy. Let's start with Charlie, first of all, because he's the main hero and he's the one telling the story. Tell us so, a bit about him. So Charlie is um, sort of loosely based on myself when I was younger. So I wasn't very outdoorsy, um, but I wasn't very sort of brave either. I was quite a shy child, um, a little bit fearful of lots of things <laughs> and quite anxious. Um, so Charlie is sort of loosely based on the child that I was. And I guess the journey that he goes on is sort of based on me growing up into who I am now. I kind of guessed at that. It felt very personal. So that obviously comes through in the writing. He is surrounded or he's sort of flanked by these two friends and Lippy in particular, uh, the girl, she sort of stands up for him, doesn't she? Tell us about Rue and Lippy. Yeah, so I wanted there to be an element of Charlie not having his own in a fire, but Lippy and Rue having they are in a fire's burning quite strongly. So they're both quite courageous characters in their own way. They're both willing to stand up for themselves. And there's this theme that runs through where Lippy and Rue, at the beginning of the book in particular, have to sort of lend Charlie some of their in a fire before he actually finds his own. So that's really what I was going for with Lippy and Rue. But, you know, they've both got their own ways of standing up for themselves. And Charlie's got to find his own way to stand up for himself. Uh, himself, But like you said, Lippy in particular is quite a feisty character. Yeah, she was, she was really fun to write. It's interesting listening to you talk there because you're referencing fire, inner fire all the way through. Yeah. And we're going to come on in a little while to thinking about this character, the Firefox. Okay. But already we're getting a sense of the fantasy story being a mirror for what's happening in the real world or a metaphor for what's happening um, in the real world. I did want to start with this first chapter, though, where there's this wonderful game that they're playing where they paint pebbles and hide them. I think it's called geocaching or something like that. Oh, right. Okay. I could be wrong. Um, But, yeah, it's loosely based on the idea of hiding something, leaving a clue, and then whoever finds it leaves something else in its place. There are two bullies in this story, and this is why Charlie needs to find his inner fire to be able to stand up for for the bullying that he um, encounters. Uh, But we'll come to that a little bit later on. I think it would be really nice now to hear a bit of the story. And you're going to read to us from the start of Chapter 5, which is... A sort of turning point because it's where we are introduced to the Firefox. Yeah, so it's quite an integral, integral part of the story. So, chapter five. For a second, I think I must have bumped my head. 
because when I look up from the ground, there's a boy standing over me, dressed in these weird clothes. Weirder still, he's carrying an orange puppy. Definitely must have bumped my head. I try to blink him away, but he doesn't fade. Then he starts talking, and I start to suspect that he's not a side effect of my bumped head after all. He's wearing a brown fur coat that rises and falls rapidly on his shoulders as he pants. He's been running. He keeps glancing over his shoulder towards the ivy, as if he's worried about being followed. Um, who are you? I ask, clambering to my feet. Nobody, he insists. He glances at the puppy in his arms, then looks me up and down. Hmm, you're a bit small, but you'll have to do. Here, hold him. And just like that, I have a puppy in my arms. It's a chubby little thing, all big ears and cheese puff orange fur, which is strangely warm. It's like hugging a hot water bottle. And that's when I realise this puppy has a long bushy tail and two pointy ears. In fact, there's something decidedly unpuppyish about it. It's a fox, I exclaim, holding it back out to nobody. The cub dangles between us and lets out a little whine. Hey, I don't want it. Nobody stands up straight, his expression severe. It's a he. His name is Firetail, and don't hold him like that. Keep him close to you. I stare dumbly down at the cub before clutching him to my chest, so that his heart beats rapidly against mine. Why is he called Firetail? I'm cut off by a piercing howl. It turns the air cold and makes the, air, the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. It's coming from behind the ivy. Now that I'm looking closely, I can see fragments of darkness through the greenery. There's no wall there at all. It's a doorway. The stranger's eyes widen in fear. You're about to find out. Put him down. Hurry! I frown and lower the cub to the ground. And through the ivy, the howling stops abruptly. The cub's hackles rise, a growl rumbling in his belly. Then, unbelievably, his fur starts shimmering. He glows brighter and brighter, and I feel a prickle of heat on my skin. It's almost like he's on. Get back, the boy shouts, shielding his face. But it's too late. The cub erupts on the spot, an orb of angry fire bursting from his body. I leap back, the flames so bright that I can barely look at them. After a few seconds, I peer through my fingers. The flames have mostly died down, and there's a cub, still standing in a ball of orange fire, completely unscathed and snarling at the ivy. I can't believe what I'm seeing. Maybe I did bump my head. That happens when he's angry or scared or excited, the boy says hurriedly. And sometimes when he's hungry. Now I really have to go. I'll be back to pick him up in two days. What? I exclaim. You can't leave him here with me. What is he? Who are you? And what on earth is going on here? The boy peers through the ivy, then back at me, his eyes wide with fear. There's no time to explain. The Grendelock is hot on my trail, and I really have to lead it away or it'll follow me through and we'll all be done for. The what? The boy groans. Through there, he says, pointing over his shoulder at the ivy, is a place called Fargon, a fantastical place where the giant emperor rats can eat you for breakfast, and the sky whales roost in the clouds. I got here using this. He pulls out the lumber stone with a swirl painted on it. It's a seal stone. This one belongs to the king. Or at least it did before I took it. But we don't want him to find out about this gateway, because he's the one who's after him. Oh, and that's where... Uh, the story really takes a turn. It's interesting because in fantasy stories, often characters go through a portal, like he'd be going into Fargon. Yes. But in this story, this other world is a suggestion and it's coming into our world. Yeah, definitely. So that was something that I wanted to toy with. I, I've i always wanted to write fantasy, um, but I also enjoy writing stories with their feet in our world as well so I thought why not have 
a fantasy book where there's sort of one foot in our world and then another, well, it's not even a full foot, it's just the toes maybe, dipping into this fantasy world because I really wanted there to be real life elements as well. And it does also leave some doors open if I wanted to write more stories in the future, then there's lots of lots of things to explore with, you know, Fargon and Teg, the character who brings the Firefox through. So there's lots of different things that I can explore. I want to ask you whether the Firefox, this magical creature, whether that was the starting point for the story for you, or was there something else? No, it was definitely the Firefox. When I've been visiting schools and talking to kids about this book, I've been telling them all about my love of magical creatures when I was younger and how I was obsessed with things like Pokemon. And I used to like make up a lot of my own magical creatures when I was younger. So I used to, I used to draw them, I used to give them their own little backgrounds, their own little stories. And the Firefox is one that I came up with a long, long time ago. I don't even know how old I was, but I was, I was quite young. Um, and I remember drawing it quite closely related to a Pokemon that already exists. But I came up with this this idea for the Firefox, and I tried writing stories about the Firefox several times as I was growing up, and none of them really worked. And then it wasn't until I was going through the adoption process with my husband, and we were just about starting to become a family, that it sort of clicked into place that this story needed, needed to be about a boy who's got two dads, who's a bit fearful of the world, and then he accidentally discovers this creature who he becomes the guardian of. Um, and it just sort of felt right, I suppose. That's really interesting. Uh, life and life and fiction merging together. Yeah. Um, and you've mentioned the, the um, adoption aspect of the story and the two dads, one called Dad, one called Pa. Yeah. That is just treated just as a normal part of the story. It never becomes what the story is about. Um, there is an, a, another adoption going on, and that's when we discover um, the background. And I liked that because it just, it didn't feel forced. Yeah, that's what I was going for. I really, really didn't want it to be an issue-led book. I really wanted it to just simply be, I didn't want it to be about the fact that Charlie is adopted or the fact that he has two dads. I just wanted that to be a part of the story in the same way that to uh, you know a mum and a dad would be or two mums or any other sort of family setup um mm. so that it's normalized and mm. that's that's what my goal with the book was really was mm. to normalize the idea of different family setups that you might not see every day i want to talk about the naming of the characters what was the fox character called it's a firefox and then teg who's the chap that brings the firefox through just names him firetail and then charlie renames him as cadna um, and why that name? Charlie lives in Wales. Um, and as you might have guessed from my accent, I'm very, very Welsh. Um, so he lives in a town called Brincastell. And Welsh lessons are a big thing in Wales. I'm a fluent Welsh speaker myself. Um, but all schools in Wales have Welsh lessons. So I was trying to think, what would you name a Firefox if you had your own if you had your own pet Firefox? And suddenly it just clicked into place that if you were in Wales, you would maybe use a Welsh word. So I thought, what's the Welsh word for fox? And that's Cadna. So mm. he names the Firefox Cadna. And then there's this other creature that is after the Firefox on the behalf of the king. And that has a name that just sounds evil. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the naming of that character and what it is. Yeah, so that character is called the Grendelok. 
and it's sort of a shape-shifting monster. So it can take three separate forms. It can take its monster form, it can take human form, and it can take the form of a hound. Because I was trying to think, what would a good hunter for a fox be? And then I drew that parallel with our own world where hounds hunt foxes. And so I thought that would be a really cool parallel to draw. Um, But its monster form is like this sort of reptilian, hybrid, werewolf kind of creature. And the name was actually inspired by... I think it was Nor is it Norse mythology? Do you know the um Grendel? Yeah. So it comes from that. And I just sort of played around with different ways of mixing that word into something else. And there was something quite sharp and monstrous about attaching lock at the end. So it just sort of it came into being all at once. I d I don't know how these things happen. Um but it started with, with the Norse mythology. You realise you've got the Welsh pitted against the Anglo-Saxons in this story. <laughs> I know I've got I've got it all going on. <laughs> um, we we said that you know in the way the fantasy element, as it often is in good fantasy stories, is some kind of metaphor for what's going on in you know the real world. Uh, you've talked about that a little bit, but say say some more for us about how that works out. Okay, so I didn't really think about this very much until very, very recently. And then it sort of occurred to me that maybe what Charlie's going through is sort of a metaphor in itself for the adoption process and what myself and my husband and our family has been through. Because Charlie is a character who is running away from something, um, who needs to gain safety and love and Cadno at the same time is also this character who is running away from something and Charlie is the one who offers him sanctuary and offers him safety and the love that he needs and yeah I I thought about it recently and I was thinking whoa okay this book is Charlie's journey is him becoming the guardian of the Firefox actually some form of metaphor for adoption in itself so he takes in this creature that really needs that really needs the love and the shelter and the support in the same way that adoption does does the same thing you know we have we have to open our homes and our hearts to these to children who through no fault of their own really need a safe loving home and yeah so there's an interesting sort of mirror between the two isn't there mm. these things come from the deepest recesses of your mind and it's often not until you see them on the paper or read them back that you know what was going on inside your head uh, when yeah. you were writing. Yeah, definitely. I, if you'd asked me that question a few weeks ago, I probably would have stumbled because it was it was literally very, very recently that I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> this is very familiar. So yeah, I think it there must have been an element of my subconscious writing away when I was when I was creating the story. Now, this is a debut novel, and people can think that debut novels come from nowhere. So mm-hmm. was it a case that this is the first book you've written and it just was published like a dream? Oh, or no. is there more to it than that? Oh, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, I think, like you said, lots of people think you write a book and then you get a book deal and then you're rich and famous and that's it. <laughs> but as you know, it doesn't really work like that. So I've always wanted to be a writer. Well, I say I say always. It was maybe... I was around eight years old when I decided I wanted to be a, wanted to be a writer. Um, so I was always writing stories. And then when I was in uni, so I must have been about 20, 21, 
I decided, okay, I'm going to start seriously trying to get published. So I wrote a book in second year of university, which was a young adult book. And I queried that with agents and I didn't get anywhere. Um, So I sort of shelved that one. Then I finished university, wrote another book, which was another young adult, queried that one. That one got me my agent, but unfortunately it didn't sell when we went on submission. So then I decided to try my hand at middle grade, wrote The Last Firefox, um, and that one did sell. So it took three three books really to get there and lots and lots of writing before that, just, you know, on my own in my bedroom late at night, just scribbling away, making up stories. What does your writing day look like? Um, uh, do you ha- Do you have another job as well and you write in between or are you like a full-time writer? No, so a writing day is definitely not a writing day. It's a writing night for me. So I've got a day job. I work part-time at the moment, so I only work in the mornings. Um, and then I've got maybe two or three hours until I have to go and pick my little boy from school. So I can do some writing then. Or usually I just write after my little boy's gone to bed. So sometimes I'll do a day at work, well, a morning at work, then an afternoon of parenting and running around. And then my writing shift won't start until maybe eight o'clock, half past eight. So um, I'm hoping that I do get to go full time one day. So that's the goal. And do you find that you're creative at night? Do you find that that's a good time for you? Or is it just circumstance means that you must write then? I think it's just circumstance. It's the only time that I've got. So I have to make it work somehow, even if I'm just getting words down on the paper and not worrying about how they sound or, you know, if they're any good, I can always come back and edit them. So, yeah, I think it is literally just the case of this is the time I have. I have to make good use of it. I have to get the words down. Otherwise, I'm not going to get it done. Dedication. And who gives you sort of writing support? Is it a lonely endeavour or do you belong to any writers groups? Where do you get your feedback from? I'm not in any writing groups, but I do have a lot of writing friends that I can I can share my sort of early drafts with. I'm usually quite a solitary writer, so it took a long time for me to get over that fear of sharing my, my work with people. But now I'm much more open to the idea of, of sharing, giving feedback, and usually it's a bit of a collaborative joint thing. So, you know, I'll read somebody's opening chapters and they'll read mine and um, then we provide feedback for each other. And it's it's good as well to have lots of our um, literary agency, Skylark. There's lots of us. and We've all got a big WhatsApp group. So I know there's always people there that I can count on as well. Oh, that's really nice. Um, I'm just wondering how uh, the editing process worked for you. Is it something that you found really helpful in shaping the novel? And were there changes that you made along the way? I'm definitely more of a natural drafter. So I enjoy the process of getting the story down on paper, even if, like I said earlier, I'm rushing it and I've just got to get the words down. And editing requires a lot more organised thought. And I'm not the most organised person, so (laughs) sometimes I struggle with that. But yeah, I think that's the great thing about having an agent and an editor and writing friends is that they can really offer you an insight or a different way of thinking about things that you would never have have thought of. So I often find that I get too close to the book to the point where I I can't see what I need to do. I can't um I can't tell what's going to make things better. And then sometimes it'll take just one little sentence from a friend who'll say, 
have you thought of doing it like this? And then I'll be like, oh my gosh, yes, that's amazing. How did I think of that? Can you tell us about some specific changes that you remember making in response to feedback, whether it was an editor at the publishing house or more informally? Yeah, so my second book, um, which I, I'm not allowed to talk about very much at the moment, but I think I can definitely share a bit about the process with that one. As I might have said earlier, I wrote a young adult book and my editor at Puffin actually suggested, why don't you rewrite that for a middle grade audience? So that's what I'm doing at the moment. So that's quite a that was quite a huge task to do. But having done most of the work now, I can see that that was definitely the right thing to do. And it just works so much better now. Isn't that good? You know, mm. something as simple as that. What did you discover in changing something from YA to middle grade? What kinds of changes did you have to make? So language, first and foremost, there was, you know, some some swearing <laughs> in the young adult version. There was also a few just things that wouldn't be appropriate for a middle grade um, audience. So there was some alcohol as well. So I had to get rid of things like that. There were elements of some more sensitive subjects that I had to iron out or handle a bit more delicately. So yeah, I was just thinking of new ways to keep a lot of the content, but make it more appropriate for younger audiences, really. That sounds really interesting. It sounds like in terms of story, you didn't have to change much in terms of plot and story, but it's more to do with the context around it that needed changing just to make it work for that audience, which I find really interesting. We did make a lot of changes to the story as well, but it's definitely the same story at heart, just with more magic, more imagination, more fun. Yeah. I'd love to know whether you've been able to get out into schools yet and start sharing the book and what sort of feedback you've had from younger readers. Yes. So last week, World Book Day week, was my first ever venture out into school. So I'd never been to schools before and I was absolutely terrified beforehand, but they were absolutely amazing and I can't wait to go back. The feedback from kids has been amazing so far. I think I I worked really hard at making it quite an accessible book. I didn't want the language to be very alienating. I wanted it to be quite simple then in terms of, of reading. So I've had quite a lot of feedback from children about how how accessible they find it, how easy of a read, that they, they're flying through it quite quickly and that it's quite funny as well. But the best thing is that I've had some adopted children or children with two mums or two dads um, get in touch or the parents of them have gotten in touch to say that they're reading the book and how much it means to them that they can see another family that looks like they is. So that's been really special. I was going to say that must be incredibly heartwarming. Mm. And I just uh, endorse what the children have said. Uh, At the beginning, I said I flew through the book. You know, that's really important for young readers. Uh, There are different kinds of readers, but I think it's really important that um, we have books that deliver a good, pacey read uh, if we really want to create readers. Yes, definitely. I mean, reading isn't something that all children will necessarily engage with. But I think if we can make stories much more accessible for readers so that they're not put off by the language or by a really bulky, long read, then that's a win. It's been a real delight talking to you today, Lee. I'm wishing you every success with the Firefox. And I can't wait to hear about the mystery book that you're not allowed to tell us about. But I'm sure 
All will be revealed in due course. (laughs) Yes, probably in a long time, you know what publishing is like. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you very much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Puffin Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.